Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone, and I'm happy to uh, report that I have back with the, as I always prefer to have with me, Bill Padalo, to discuss the issues of the day. Uh, welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Glad to be here. So today is March 12, 2020, and the topic we have for discussion today, I'm not going to say this is a good friend, but it is a good topic. <laughs> and I won't say anything overly negative. We'll let all that come out over the course of the show, as it will. And what do I mean? Well, we're going to be talking about the Christiana Trust. And as many of you will know uh, who listen to the Neil Garfield show regularly, Christiana Trust, it's, it's hard for me to, uh, to give descriptions without giving some kind of advertising reference, but let's just say the Christiana Trust, which is officially part of the Wilmington Savings Fund Society, FSB, that this particular trust is involved in a lot of bill cases in my cases. And the reason for that is not that Bill and I have done some kind of marketing related to this trust. We have even some special inside connection related to this trust. It's just that, interestingly, it might be a coincidence, maybe it's not, uh, but the Christiana Trust shows up in a lot of litigation. And it shows up in a lot of litigation where there are big problems for the other side in the litigation. It shows up in a lot of litigation where there are fraud problems with the other side in the litigation, uh, which allows me to do a disclaimer reference, which, you know, look, the disclaimers for this show are are both presented within the show itself at both the beginning and end of the show. However, given the topic today, given the given the weight, uh, given the depth of what we're discussing related to this specific case, that is Bill and I discussing, I am going to make the disclaimer. This is a topic show. I'm not getting legal analysis. I'm not even weighing in on the legal rights of Christiana Trust or weighing in on what should happen legally to the Christiana Trust. I am telling borrowers and whoever else is listening to this show, you too, if you are listening to this show and you have a perspective about this show that, let's say, is not normally one of alignment, 
you might want to look into the particulars and the bona fides of the Christiana Trust. You might particularly find it useful to do so after listening to the content of today's show, uh, keeping in mind, again, that we, we, Bill and I both, each of us individually, both of us collectively, we're not making any declarations. We're not making any legal conclusions. We're presenting facts as we know them. We're presenting information as we know them. This is an informational show, to repeat that point. And I think it behooves all listeners whether you support our position generally or don't support our position generally. It behooves all listeners to look into these facts more deeply, and then you can draw your own. To be clear, Bill and I did not create these facts. These facts came to us. These facts, and I I, I won't speak for Bill, but I'll speak for myself. Facts related to the Christiana Trust usually fall on top of me because the borrowers who bring those to me typically are faced with something akin to what we're discussing today. To put it another way, Christiana Trust litigation is not typically routine because the bad behavior on the other side is so egregious and uh, so dramatic and so patent. And again, that's not a legal conclusion. That's simply an informational observation based on the topic show of today. Uh, so, Bill, I would love for you to weigh in on uh, your take about something that fell on top of your head. It wasn't my head. It was a particular event fell on top of uh, Well, I'd, I'd be happy to. That's a very good disclaimer, by the way. And uh, and uh, I, too, both of us, I share with that uh, that uh, certainly I'm not giving legal opinions as I'm not a, an attorney either. So uh, that being said, this is uh, this story that I posted on that we're talking about today comes out of Kentucky, and it's a case that I'm uh, personally involved in. And uh, my client uh, gave me full permission to uh, talk about uh, some of these topics and to post about this. Uh, so I just want to let you know that um, I, I do seek that permission before I go freely and, and have uh, uh, present these facts out there to the general public in the, in the midst of the litigation. But I am personally involved in the case. And um, it's very interesting and it's kind of humorous, actually, because the uh, the court was uh, weighing in on a summary judgment motion uh, by the uh, Christiana Trust Wilmington Savings Fund Society and denied uh, uh, in part the, the summary judgment and issued kind of a, an order that a lot of details were spelled out that were actually uh, kind of humorous, and that being... <laughs> Uh, it sort of goes to what I've been saying, we've been saying for you know years, and Neil has been saying that the evidence is uh, getting more and more clear each and every day. And here we have a, a, a very clear uh, picture of looking behind the Wizard of Oz curtain to show that there is no connection between these alleged trustees and the trusts and the servicers or whatnot. Uh, no retainer agreements with the law firms. Um, we've we've been able to flesh that out and get our foots in the door for a long time, uh, trying to push these these arguments before the court. But here we have an admission uh, by opposing counsel in this case, who basically, when forced with um, to deal with some counterclaims, actually. So the 
they come in as a plaintiff, filed the foreclosure suit. Uh, my client uh, filed counterclaims against these parties, and um, and in the midst of filing the counterclaims, the attorney was forced to uh, have to defend rather than prosecute. And in doing so, uh, he realized uh, that he never really did appears to verify that the party he claims to represent um, actually exists. And so he kind of has to scramble to find out the identity of, of uh, the trust and, and all of the parties that are named in the suit that he is supposed to represent because he's concerned he's not going to get paid. Um, and so he resorts to Googling the, the, the parties uh, to find out who do I contact because the servicers, now there's two servicers mainly in the case, SPS, Select Portfolio Servicing, and another well-known one that uh, tends to come into these Christiana Wilmington cases, and that's Rushmore Loan Management. Um, so he reaches out to the servicers asking for information about who do I contact uh, at Christiana Wilmington, and he's not Apparently, according to the way the order is spelled out, and I posted it on my site, the judge kind of lays out specifically that uh, he's not getting any cooperation, really, in answering those questions. And so when he Googles, he gets lead counsel for both Christiana and Wilmington, and he sends formal letters to both of these uh, entities uh, seeking information and saying, hey, here's my situation. I'm caught in this case. I represent the, these the, you guys, really, in, in these trusts, and I can't find anybody to really answer my questions, pick up the phone, or pay my tab. So uh, as a result of sending those letters, and it's very humorous because I think now with this post, uh, he names names uh, in this court judgment or the, the court order on the summary judgment, um, I, I have a feeling that these uh, council members, for, or the lead council for Christiana Wilmington, are get probably inundated with similar requests from now on uh, from people trying to find out that same information. But anyhow, um, he hears cricket, so there's no response. He goes back to the servicers, and the servicers basically are not cooperating and, and proving and showing their connection as well to these, to the particular trust. And, uh, and in doing so, there's even admission made, uh, kind of, it, it sounds as though, by the, the crafting of the way I read it, is that SPS says, well, uh, the trust that, you know, you were representing when we filed this suit has been liquidated. Uh, so we, we don't have any more contact with that trust or, you know, basically we don't know anything more than that. So the guys, the, the attorney's kind of flailing out in the wind trying to piece together who his client is and how he's going to get paid and how he's going to defend these counterclaims because when he was first faced with this, the first knee-jerk reaction and what most of these attorneys do when they get boxed in is they, they move to withdraw from the case. They quickly want to pass the hot potato and, and toss it over to, to some other law firm that they have waiting in the wings or on deck uh, to carry it from there. And this court would not let this attorney out. So this is why he's you know scrambling and, and, and gets boxed in. So uh, it gets real interesting now. Uh, because this is scheduled for trial in the not too distant future, and um, and it really you know it plays into the topic we had on the show a couple weeks ago about this contrived ignorance and how 
there's a, a complete lack of verification uh, by the law firms who are coming in and, and uh, claiming to represent these uh, parties as their client. There's no retainer agreements, no verification, and now here we have uh, a first-hand view of what's going on behind the, the curtain. And so I think one of the most important takes from this, and, I, and I'll get your opinion on this, uh, Charles, is that whereas it kind of it doesn't just open the door for discovery at the very beginning of these cases when you're going up against specifically Christiana Wilmington or these whatever trust XYZ trust that they're naming to represent but this really opens the door wide enough for a Mack truck to drive through uh, based on this type of evidence this type of a, of a finding in a, in a court to really attack from the very get-go now and have a reason, a legitimate reason to do so as to all the, the authorities of the parties uh, coming into court seeking relief. Uh, this really should and hopefully will get the court's attention uh, to, to say, you know what, uh, you know, show 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 me the retainer agreement. Show me the communication. Show me the authority beyond just your self-proffered statements uh, and your self-authored power of attorney documents that are you know drafted and prepared by the servicers themselves, uh, so on and so forth. So I think this is going to be very helpful moving forward um, in discovery. Um, and this, you know, this. This plays out so well and shows, I mean, because I can show such a pattern in practice. In fact, when I testified in a, a, a case down in South Florida in the fall where we prevailed, I was able to testify that, look, this trust doesn't have any agency authority whatsoever with the party who, who filed this complaint. And I testified and I showed it right to the court. Um, and... We also now have great evidence to show that the trustees themselves, U.S. Bank, for example, we've talked about this, they've published in their own corporate flyers what their role is, and they specifically state that they have no agency with the servicers. All right, so now we have hard evidence to show a complete disconnect between these parties. And, and what I'm curious and what I want to kind of get your take on, Charles, a little bit is, an attorney's duty to verify that their client exists or that the position they're taking is actually coming from the, 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 the client instead of when you say uh, the agent came to me and hired me on behalf of the principal. Do you, how far do you have to go in verifying that there really is a principal and that the principal's argument is, has any merit to it? Uh, that last of what you just said, Bill, is really both compelling and profound and a perfect jumping-off point for describing for the listeners, again, whether you're a listener who generally supports this show or a listener who generally does not support this show, take note of the following. And the following is this. If you're just a regular litigant, you could even have a multi-million dollar lawsuit going, and you could be a capitalized corporation with 
possibly hundreds of employees. You could certainly have a, book, a big footprint in the local area in which you operate, possibly even one of the big cities. If you bring a lawsuit under the following scenario, like, okay, you are representing that you have a legal right to go after this individual or this entity. And I don't care whether the law is about foreclosure. I don't care what it's about. If you then play together or possibly you have the agent who you will have negotiate and and possibly even file your lawsuit in effect and basically do everything in connection with your lawsuit, you like did you just appoint an agent uh it could be out of nowhere. It could be somebody you have an established situation with. If you bring a lawsuit and then a defendant, which they must respond because it is a lawsuit, if they have some concerns or questions and they try to address you as plaintiff of the case and there's an immediate kind of response that uh, well, there's an agent handling it all. I mean, this is a case where this case will be burned down a lot sooner or later. And I'm not going to prognosticate or make derivative assumptions. I do think there are proven things that can be said about anything. Anybody who's been listening to the show for a while with me as the host knows that I think reasonable, prudential, derivative conclusions can be drawn about all kinds of things. Otherwise, by the way, as in law, so in life, as in life, so in law, we wouldn't be here tomorrow. So, yes, we need to make distinctions and we need to draw conclusions. Otherwise, we don't wake up in the morning. We will have died overnight because we didn't get some fundamental thing about our life right. So we do draw conclusions and we do make reasonable inferences. We do it every day. That's why we do wake up the next morning typically. And in terms of how that plays out uh, regarding the topic at hand, bottom line here is the Christiana Trust has basically downloaded everything onto SBS concerning this litigation. Yet they're the actual named plaintiff. They're a co-plaintiff. We don't even need to get into the details of the other co-plaintiff for the purposes of this show about the distraction, which is why I'm not getting into it right now. You can pick that up on another show. Let's just make clear, super clear, I think it's clear already, SPS is acting supposedly on the behalf of Wilmington Savings, the Christiana Trust, and yet the Christiana Trust is saying, we have nothing to do with this case. This loan is not on our books. There's not even a legal entity associated with this loan anymore such that we can represent that we're behind this lawsuit. I mean, this is shocking. This would be career-ending for the attorney who took this case in any jurisdiction, if it were a not foreclosure case, if it did not involve the big lenders and the big 
institutional trust, and I will say this again, and I, I don't say this on this show to kind of harangue people. It's more like this is how profound, this is how true what I say is. Institutional bias, institutional bias, institutional bias. How else? Someone let me know. I mean, somehow get a communication to me. Let me know what else explains what's going on with this case. And, yes, good for the judge. Uh, Absolutely, the judge is following the law, and he's not letting this attorney out of the case. He might reasonably decide, actually, that this attorney should be pushed out of practicing at all. Again, that's not a legal conclusion or a legal filing, legal finding. That's simply kind of an incidental observation based on the topic at hand. Nevertheless, I think the judge is actually taking a very soft approach here. But, yes, keeping the attorney in the case is the minimal that should be done. Uh, He might have actually simply granted uh, any judicial finding available to him. He certainly had the availability to grant judicial findings on behalf of the defendant. He demurred and declined to do so here, and here I use little d demur. I'm not talking about California demurs here. Uh, So this is really compelling, profound stuff. Uh, I think it's likely that, that, that Bill and I and possibly others will take this topic up again on another show. This is kind of blow-out-of-the-ballpark-type material. It should shock the conscience, not just the listeners on this show, that this is how crazy it gets that the other side has this power, has this leverage, has this clout. This is an attorney who brings a lawsuit he literally has no contact with the plaintiff. He has contact with the with the agent of the plaintiff. And I also want to emphasize this because this is where we get to be back into the real world of Athen law, selling life, Athen life, selling law. The only reason this all came out, the only reason we're even discussing this today and able to discuss it today, the only reason that it exists on a real court docket is because this defendant, and good on her and good for her, for standing for her rights and pushing for the truth and pushing for justice to be done. Good on her for doing this countersuit, and the result of which never would have come out, I suspect, this whole set of facts and the associated law that will come from this. Never would have come out but for this countersuit. This countersuit forced the attorney suing her in a judicial foreclosure state to push the envelope and basically the upshot from her countersuit is he's got no connection to his plaintiff. I mean, this is shocking. Again, this should shock the conscience of everyone listening right now. I'm not just talking about some legal framework. I'm not even talking about some life framework. I'm talking about the fundamentals of why we're here on the planet, 
this is simply shocking stuff, and there's no way that I could exaggerate how shocking it is. So the current well, what I what I suspect you're trying to cut yeah, you off there, Charles, but <clears throat> what I suspect is going on here. Uh, when not only does he admit in this order that it's a non-existent legal entity, but the excuse for saying that is that it's a bunch of hearsay gobbledygook. He says that the servicer told him that the trust was liquidated and and, and therefore it no longer exists. I don't think these trusts, well, obviously they didn't exist to begin with. I think this is an excuse that they're saying it goes to this plausible deniability aspect, is they're just telling them, oh, it was liquidated. But do you think in the light of day in, that we're ever going to see anything regarding this fictitious sham trust in, about its liquidation and anything regarding that? Absolutely not. But if they would have come out when they were boxed in and admitted, ah, we are a sham entity, it really doesn't exist, I mean, then, you know, it's that's then there's nowhere for them to go. So this is sort of their way of trying to wiggle out of this whole sham that they've been running. And by just simply saying, oh, yeah, I was liquidated and it was closed and we don't have any more contact. So they just kind of left this attorney out there to now figure it out. Uh, but I doubt, my suspicions doubt, um, and I know plenty of listeners out there uh, who follow this stuff that – when you start getting in, this, this trust that was allegedly liquidated, by the way, was a fairly recent series trust. It's one of these, you know, 2014, 15, 16, all these newer fangled trusts of resecuritizations and all that. And what you, when you get into these cases, and you hit on it earlier about Christiana and Wilmington, about that they seem to take on the cases that have, you know, really egregious issues and deficiencies with their paperwork. Uh, when they suddenly come into play. And what I see is in these cases with these entities is suddenly you're going to see a whole line of uh, assignments being recorded in the land records or being provided in the in the case that you'll see suddenly six assignments, and they're all relatively close in part. And it's going from one weird trust to another weird trust, back to this trust, on to that trust, and it's just juggling all these uh, entities to try to bury uh, the, 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 the story and stuff and, and to all these layers of plausible deniability for those handling it. But, but again, uh, I think this is their way of trying to slip out of this without getting totally caught. They, they made up a story, and now when we try to force them to show the evidence behind this story, um, you're going to find out that there was never any liquidation or it will never be produced. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, and since we're running out of time here, I do have a couple of quick things I want to say, uh, which, you know, I think are fundamental to this. One, you know, generally those who listen to the show know I, I, I tend to emphasize on California law and non-judicial foreclosures. Well, this is a judicial foreclosure case, and I will tell the list, listeners related to this show um, this is a profound moment. Counterclaims, countersuits are available. And we will absolutely have a future show. Bill and I certainly, and I will be able to coordinate with Neil to bring uh, Neil in for a future show as well, where we talk about uh, counterclaims against judicial foreclosing parties. 
that is a largely untread option opportunity for those being sued by judicial foreclosure plaintiffs. This case is a leading edge. This case is a leading light into what that could possibly look like. You don't need this constellation of facts. You don't need you don't need this particular scenario to be able to counter-sue, and we will talk about that in a show coming fairly soon. On the discovery end, ask for all emails, ask for all communications, ask for all possible ways of communicating, whether it's phone call, email, between the servicer and the nominal trust, and between the nominal trust and the servicer. That's the bottom line on that point. And Neil will be back next week. Thank you very much, Phil, for illuminating this topic. And we will see you shortly. Thank you, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.